Well, brothers and sisters, I think most of you have heard the little adage, give a man a fish and he eats for a day, teach him to fish and he eats for a lifetime, right? I've often applied that to preaching, to what pastor teachers do. Pastor teachers, preachers are called to feed the people with the word of God, but they're also to be an example to the people of God as how to dig out and mine truth from the Bible so that the people of God might feed themselves. Does that make sense? James says that those who teach will receive a stricter judgment. And I'm aware that when I give account to Jesus, I will be accountable for what I have taught, but also accountable for how I have arrived at those things. I will be accountable for the accuracy of my systematic theology and my biblical theology and my exegesis, which means from two Greek words, leading out of Scripture. Have I done it accurately? I'm very conscious of that. And arriving as we do to Mark 13, and you can be turning in your Bibles to Mark 13, arriving to this portion of Scripture as we did last week, I'm especially conscious of my stewardship, that I am responsible to be an example of how to get truth out of the Word of God. Well, I've noted that the Olivet Discourse, the sermon that Jesus gave from the Mount of Olives, which is here in Mark 13, it's in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, has been viewed as one of the most difficult passages in the Synoptic Gospels to interpret. In light of that, As I preach through this passage, I want to do so with more than usual humility and openness to any misunderstanding that I might have. I always want to approach the Bible humbly and teachably, but especially with a difficult passage like this, where there's a lot of disagreement. I want a special measure of humility and understanding that that I could misunderstand things. And I want to call upon you in a special way as I preach through this passage to exercise the spirit of the Bereans. Remember how the Bereans were commended? They were more noble than those at Thessalonica. Why? Because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things are true. And I want you to fact check me, okay? And I'm grateful to be preaching to a congregation of people who know the word of God well. You men and women are well studied. And I appreciate that. And I want you to test what you hear and Bring it before the Lord and see if these things are true. Now, last week we covered the first four verses of Mark 13, and I read them now in your hearing. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began, okay, we're going to stop with that just as introduction. So Jesus is leaving the temple for the last time on Tuesday before the Friday that he will be killed. And his disciples are utterly enamored with the grandeur and the magnificence of the temple buildings. That temple had been built and enlarged by Herod the Great. It was known as Herod's Temple. 
At this point, they had worked on it for 50 years, and there were still a couple of more decades to be done on that temple. Of this temple, the Roman historian Tacitus said, quote, it was famous beyond all other works of men, closed quote, and was a temple of immense worth. Later, rabbis boasted, he who has not seen the temple in its full splendor has never seen a beautiful building. And so they were in sync with the whole society and marveling and taking pride in, in the temple buildings. But Jesus stuns them with the words they weren't expecting. You see that building that you think is so beautiful, so wonderful? Not one stone will be left upon another. In other words, that temple complex is going to be utterly demolished. Well, they couldn't get that out of their minds. And as they proceed from the temple to the Mount of Olives, they ask Jesus the question in verse 4, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Now, I told you I, we needed to refer to Matthew here and the way the question is posed in Matthew. Matthew's version, Matthew 24, 3, puts it this way. Tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, in the Greek, before the phrase, your coming and the end of the age, there is but one article, the indicating that they viewed that as the same event. In other words, when Jesus came, it would be the end of the age. And I think we can further say, in their mind, they were really only asking one question. They believed that when this temple is destroyed, it must be at your coming in the end of the age. Such was their view of the temple that it was indestructible and eternal. Listen to a quote by Philo, who was a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher of the day, he said of the temple's revenue, the money collected in the temple, quote, for as long as the race of mankind shall last, the revenues likewise of the temple will always be preserved, being coeval in their duration with the universal world. So people believe this temple is going to last as long as the world. So if it's ever going to be destroyed, it must be at the time of Jesus coming and the end of the age. So in their mind, they were thinking this is going to be one big event, but they were wrong. In truth, the destruction of the temple and the coming of Jesus, his parousia, his second coming, were two separate events. In fact, already there's been nearly 2,000 years between 70 AD, well, maybe 1,955 years, and where we are now. And so I believe, and most believe, that in answering the question, they're going, Jesus is going to answer it in twofold way. He's going to answer when the temple was going to be destroyed. And I think he's going to answer when he's coming again and when is the end of the age. Now, the challenge is to try to sort out when is Jesus talking about what happened in the first century, the destruction of the temple, and when might he be talking about his second coming? Well, the results of my study this week which is on top of many hours studied over many years. But the result of my study this week has led me to believe more fully than ever that the great bulk of this passage is referring to the first century. Now, I do believe in this passage, Jesus is speaking about his second coming. We do believe that Jesus futuristically is coming back in his parousia. But I have become more convinced than ever 
that the great preoccupation of this passage is with events that happened leading up to and including 70 AD. Now, it will be my challenge in future sermons to prove that to you. One pastor said, he who asserts must prove, okay? I accept the challenge. But what I want to do now is what I don't typically do. I'm going to read the whole passage from verse 5 to 37. And as I do, I want you to be asking in your own mind, what's talking about the first century and what's talking about the second coming? Okay, so it's going to take a few minutes, four minutes, but at least I'm giving you something to do to occupy your mind. In your mind, what do you think? Well, that's certainly first century. Ah, that may be second coming. Okay, we're not going to answer those questions completely today, but ask those questions. So here we go. So Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. These things must take place, and that is not yet the end. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. Also, these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard. They will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before the governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. But... When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now, and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches, branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the time will come. 
It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stand the alert. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Now I'm sure in your minds you're saying, ah, this is maybe first century, this is the second coming, right? That's, those are the questions we're going to answer in the weeks ahead. But like I said, I've become more convinced that overwhelmingly this text is talking about events in the first century. And so I've entitled this message Preliminary Thoughts, okay? And I'm going to give you seven reasons why I believe this is largely first century activity. And then I'm going to take it passage by passage in future weeks. The first reason is this. Jesus' whole ministry points to the demise of Judaism. Why do I think that the Olivet Discourse, the talk Jesus gave from the Mount of Olives, is largely preoccupied with the events in the next 40 years in 70 AD is because the whole ministry of Jesus points to the demise of Israel and Judaism. Now, if we were dealing with Matthew, we could see this much more fully because Matthew was written for the Jews Mark was written for the Romans, so a lot of those references are not in Mark that are in Matthew, but there's enough. Remember the portrayal of Jesus as the true Israel of God. Remember Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Why 40 days? It's significant because it's intended to be a parallel between the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness. And what the authors of the Gospels are telling us is that Jesus is the true Israel. They sinned and they failed in the wilderness. Jesus, the true Israel, has come. And in the wilderness, he faced every temptation and faced it down and did not sin. Jesus is the true Israel. Further, we look at, and we've seen it in Mark, the constant contention with the Jewish leaders throughout his ministry, which is spelling doom for Israel and Judaism. Let me just recap. In chapter 2 of Mark, remember Jesus heals the crippled man. He forgives his sins, and he discerns that the Pharisees are say, saying in their heart, who can forgive sins but God only? And they are blaspheming. Later on in chapter 2, the scribes see him eating with tax collectors, and they challenge his disciples. Why is he eating with tax collectors? Remember, we come... Um, uh, his disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees accuse them to Jesus of, of doing what is not lawful according to their laws. In chapter 3, he's in the synagogue, and there's the man with the, the, the withered hand, and his enemies are waiting to see what he will do. Not because it was against God's law to heal on the Sabbath, but it would have been a violation of their man-made rabbinic laws. And they were watching him, and he looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and after... He healed the man. They went out to plot to destroy him. In chapter 7, the Pharisees and scribes accused Jesus' disciples of eating with unwashed hands and, quote, not walking according to the tradition of the elders. That's where Jesus blasts them for their traditions. He says, by your traditions, you neglect, you set aside, you invalidate the word of God. In chapter 8, he has just fed 4,000 people with a few loaves and fish, and they say, show us a sign. He says, an evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. 
And remember the three times in chapter 8, 9, and 10, Jesus is repeatedly trying to get into the heads of the disciples. The Son of Man's going to go up to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer under the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and he's going to be killed and then be raised. He's trying to tell them, these are my enemies. They hate me. They're going to kill me. And most recently, in the recent chapters of Mark, we've seen how Jesus is in the temple for the last time, and one group of enemies after another, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, are coming at him from a different angle, all trying to get him to incriminate himself, find a ground of accusation against him that they might destroy him. And then he goes on the offensive And he exposes the scribes as being ignorant about the Messiah. He challenges them from Psalm 110. You know, how can David call him his son when David calls him his Lord? He shows you don't really understand about this Messiah who was in their midst. Then he warns them against their ungodly character. They were man-pleasing, widow-oppressing, glory hogs who were dangerous guides. Further, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on that Monday, we see his holy physical violence against the perversion of the temple. He comes into the temple. He sees people buying and selling and in, in holy anger. He overturns the tables and he, he drives out the buyers and the sellers. And it was pointed out to me this week in my study that he didn't only drive out the sellers, he drove out the buyers. They were the regular people who were buying the animals, which indicates that Jesus was not only disgusted with the leaders, he was disgusted with the whole religion in Israel. All these things are portending the doom of Jerusalem. He calls them this adulterous and sinful generation in Mark 8, 38. And remember, he curses the fig tree. Why? Because Jesus was peeved, because he was hungry. That would sow beneath our Lord. He cursed Israel because Israel was a symbol or the fig tree was a symbol of Israel. All leaves and no fruit. And in chapter 12, he tells the parable of the vine growers, which describes the way Israel has beaten and killed the prophets. And he predicts, well, when the owner of the vineyard sends his son, they'll regard his son, But they take the son and they kill him, predicting that these Jewish leaders are going to kill me. So do you see that? Why am I saying that the Olivet Discourse is really preoccupied with the destruction of the temple? Because Jesus' whole ministry illustrates an antagonism, a growing antagonism and enmity between him and the Jewish leaders. They are in trouble. Secondly, The immediate context of the Olivet Discourse points to judgment against the current generation. Turn back with me to Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is just before Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. So we don't have this in Mark, but you need to see it. This is what leads up to this discourse in chapter 24, which I'm saying is all about, majorly about, the first century, and the destruction of the temple. In Matthew 23, as you know, it is the most extensive, scathing rebuke that Jesus gives of the scribes and Pharisees in the Gospels. At least seven times he pronounced woes upon them. And let's just review them briefly. Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. 
Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. And he goes on in verse 27. Let me read 29 and following. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the cup, the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Jesus is telling these religious leaders that they are filling up the cup of God's wrath. He's saying God has about had enough of you, and his wrath is about to be poured out on you. And then he goes on to say, just prior to the Olivet Discourse, listen to 34 to 39. These are significant verses leading up to that address. Truly I say to you, this generation, yes, 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I'm sorry. Where am I? Yeah, that's right. I'm in the right place. Until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of... I'm sorry. I'm in 24. I was confusing myself. No, 23, 34. Therefore, behold... Therefore, behold, after that scathing denunciation, therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Notice, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. You were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Jesus is predicting here how they're going to treat future messengers. And then he says, upon you will fall all the righteous blood shed on earth. And verse 36 is significant. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he says, your house is being left to you desolate. Not only did the whole ministry of Jesus point forward to God's judgment upon Israel, but the immediate context of the Olivet Discourse is all about Israel's just demise. God is finished with you. He's done. Your house is desolate. 
These things are going to come upon this generation. That's all leading up to Jesus giving the Olivet Discourse. Do you see why it makes sense for him to be focused in that discourse upon what's going to come to Israel? So, and not only that, one more thing as far as the context, the immediate context of um, the Olivet Discourse pointing to judgment and I'll just refer to two verses in Ezekiel. You need not turn there, but listen to Ezekiel 11, 22 and 23. Ezekiel is in exile. Judgment has come upon Israel. The temple's been destroyed. They're in exile in Babylon. And Ezekiel says to the people in exile, verses 22 and 23 of Ezekiel 11, then the cherubim, he's seeing a vision. He says, then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. This is significant. The glory of the Lord left the temple and went to a mountain to the east. In other words, God had brought judgment upon Israel and, and the temple. The glory departed, Ichabod. Now, what is Jesus doing as he leaves this Herodian temple? He's going to the Mount of Olives. Guess what the mountain is east of Jerusalem? It's the Mount of Olives. Jesus is visibly doing a reenactment of God's departure and judgment upon the first temple. You see that? It's really significant. God's glory left that first temple and hovered over a mountain. Jesus, the Son of God, is leaving the temple, and he's going to a mountain, symbolizing that now God's judgment is upon this Herodian temple. Thirdly, a couple reasons why I believe there's preoccupation with 70 AD, Jesus' whole ministry points to the demise of Judaism. The immediate context of the Olivet Discourse points to judgment against the current generation. Thirdly, more briefly, the question of the disciples relates to the temple then standing in Jerusalem. There are some commentators who believe that the temple in view in the discourse is some future rebuilt temple. But dear friends, I appeal to your common sense. The disciples are asking not about some future temple. They're asking about the temple that their eyes are feasting on, that they're marveling in. That's the temple they're asking about. And so when Jesus answers the question, it's about that temple. Lord, when will not one stone be left upon another of this temple? It makes sense that Jesus is answering them about the temple that they had in mind. Thirdly, fourthly, much of the language of the discourse is personal, directed at Jesus' contemporaries. Verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, verse 9, they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged, and you will stand before kings. Verse 13, you will be hated by all. Verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation, and if anyone says to you, verse 21, verse 23, I have told you in advance. You see why I say that there's a lot of first century in this teaching? Because he's very personal. You, 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 my contemporaries. Five of seven. Much of the language is local in color. Geographically, historically, and culturally. 
Verse 14, you who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Verse 15, one who is on the housetop. How many of you hang out on your roofs? Not really, right? But they had flat roofs then. Ours are peaked. And you won't get me up there even to repair it, you know. But um, we don't hang out on our roofs. But at that time, they're going to have flat roofs. And so it's very local. The one who is in the field. So I'm saying a lot of the language has local color, which speaks of the first century. Number six, language that seems like second coming language can be convincingly explained otherwise. And this is going to be my challenge based on what I now understand. When you see the gospel must first be preached to all the nations, ah, second coming, it's got to be. Well, we're going to examine that. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Stars falling. Got to be the cataclysm at the end of the age, right? Maybe. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Second coming, right? Maybe. We're going to see. We're going to compare Scripture with Scripture, right? And we're going to examine those things. I believe that it is possible and even makes more sense to understand those seemingly cataclysmic events as applicable in the first century. You say, I don't think so, Pastor. Well, he who asserts must prove and give me a chance, okay? Now, I believe in the second coming, okay? But it's possible that maybe these references are not to his parousia. We'll see. Finally, a significant key for me is Mark 13, 30. Again, look at the text. It's in Matthew as well. After saying all that he says in verses 1 to 29, which includes some of those phrases, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That becomes a big challenge to interpreters. All these things that I've spoken of in verses 5 to 29 will take place within this generation. What do we do with that? Well, the word generation, genea, well, first of all, let me say whatever Jesus means, he says it with great force. Whatever Jesus says, truly, amen, in Greek, from which we get amen, he means, he means business. This is important. This is a solemn fact. Often, he says it contrary to popular opinion. You've heard that it has been said, but I say to you, and then he adds, truly, I say to you. He wants their attention. Then the double negative, ume, by no means will pass away this generation until all these things come to pass. And then verse 31, heaven and earth may pass away, not my words. Well, the key question is, what does generation mean? Are you, are you tracking with me? This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Wait a minute. The gospel must be preached to all the nations. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power. Wait, all those things are going to happen in this generation? Well, it hinges on what does generation mean? The word generation, genea, sometimes means a race of people, a kind of people. In Luke 16, in the parable, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of God, their own generation. Sometimes Jesus speaks of 
an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. You unbelieving and perverted generation. He could be speaking, you're, you're of that kind. You're unbelieving and you're perverted and you're evil and adulterous. But when the phrase, this generation is used, it seems very clear that it is speaking of the people that are living at that time. Matthew eleven sixteen. but to, to what shall I compare this generation? And he's referring to people who John the Baptist comes and you don't like him. He comes eating and drinking. Uh, he comes with austerity. You don't like him. I come eating and drinking. You know, you call me a glutton. You people are hard to please. He's talking about this generation, talking about the people in front of him who have rejected John the Baptist and are rejecting him. In Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Nineveh repented and they had far less light and you have more light and you're not repenting. It's going to be harder for you in the judgment. Who? You, you in front of me, you living at this time. And then as we saw Matthew 23, 36, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. All these woes are coming upon this generation, not this kind of people, but you living at this time who are guilty of all those things I've just exposed. Does that make sense? Clearly then, when Jesus says in Mark 13, 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I think he's talking about his contemporaries. I think he's talking about those living at that time. And guess what a generation is? 40 years. And when is he speaking these words? 30 AD. When was the temple destroyed? 70 AD. 40 years hence. So, I think a case can be made for much of the Olivet Discourse to be speaking about events in the first century, and I will seek to make that case in future sermons, and I'll present it for your consideration. Be Bereans. Search the scriptures to see if these things are true, and challenge me and challenge my understanding at any point, and we'll study it together. But make no mistake about it. Even though I believe the bulk of this discourse is about what happened in 70 AD, culminating in the destruction of the temple, Jesus Christ is coming back. I personally believe that the transition is in verse 32. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, nor the Father. I believe that's where he's transitioning to talking about not this day, but that day. And his repeated exhortation is be on the alert, be on the alert, be on the alert. Because Jesus is coming back. As he left, he will return. Now, this will apply to us as believers in future messages. We need to be on the alert for Christ's coming. We don't know when it is. But I do want to close with a word to any who are not Christians here. Jesus Christ is coming back. When he comes back, he will come as a reigning king. And he will come as a judge to judge all men. And his standard of judgment will be inflexible unless you have perfectly obeyed God in everything, every moment of your life. 
you will be under the wrath of God because to offend God's law at one point makes you guilty of all. How can you be ready for when Jesus Christ comes back, when he comes a second time, only by coming to terms with what he did when he came the first time? And the first time, he didn't come as a judge. He didn't come to rule with an iron rod. He came as a lamb. He came as a suffering servant. He came to live a perfect life and fulfill the law on behalf of sinners. And he came to offer himself up as a sacrifice, dying in agony of body and soul on a cross so that you and I could have our sins forgiven if we will but repent and believe in him. So although we haven't focused on the second coming of Christ and we won't until the end of the discourse, he is coming back. And be ready for his second coming. You need to recognize he came the first time. And he came to be the only savior of sinners. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. If you're not putting your trust fully in Jesus, I plead with you to put your trust in Jesus. Then whether he comes now or at any time, you will be ready. He will come and take you to be with himself and to be with him forever. But you must repent.